Under the Controlled Substances Act and Corollary State Law, the growth, trafficking, sale, possession, or consumption of psychedelics may be a felony punishable by imprisonment, fines, forfeiture of property, or some combination thereof. Psychedelical X is for general information only. Information provided on the show does not constitute legal advice, nor does your listening to the show create an attorney-client relationship with the host. Hello, I'm attorney Gary Smith, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Psychedelic Alex, The Law of Psychedelics, my ongoing exploration of the question of the law of psychedelics. All right, well, happy Sunday to everybody. It's uh, early morning, and I'm enjoying a cup of coffee here, and wanted to do another open letter to the Law and Regulatory Committee of the Psychedelic Bar Association to share some of my thoughts on where we might want to take at least aspects of this project that we've undertaken of drafting a uniform plant and fungi medicine act. These are not necessarily things I'm going to say that we'll, we will for sure follow, and it's not necessarily things that the Law and Regulatory Committee will endorse, but I've been thinking a great deal on how we structure this, and I wanted to spend a little time sharing these comments outside of our committee meeting because it takes a little longer to get out and I didn't want to be a guy hogging the committee meetings. So, if you're listening to this, thanks for taking time. So, on the concept here of trying to take, well, frankly, the country, from its current place of total prohibition on psychoactive substances, effective total prohibition, really, uh, there are some exceptions, of course, but in the interest of taking the nation from this place of prohibition to something else, we're going to have to decide as a committee drafting these things what that's going to look like and, and what sort of structure, if any, would lend itself. And I have to think as sort of starting principles, we have to be realistic about getting something passed because the only way you're going to actually create change in any of these laws is, well, frankly, by changing those laws. And that means one of two probable paths, first being uh, adoption of a changed body of law inside of a state legislature, meaning that we would draft this model and hopefully draw the attention of one or more legislatures to take it on and, and adopt it. The other pathway is if you're one of those fortunate people who lives in the handful of states that allow for public initiatives, you could bypass your legislature and run a body of statutes in the form of a public initiative and take the question directly to the voters and skip your legislature. Whichever of those paths one were to choose, and they're both very good paths, you still have to convince people to say yes. And, and that's probably my, my top uh, theme for today's conversation, which is if you want to get people with authority to make law changes, to make changes in law, you have to convince them that what you want should be something they would want, or at a minimum, at least, they would approve of, even if they don't personally hold interest. So knowing that, I think the task at hand in drafting this thing has to keep that in mind at all times, because otherwise, 
I am very fearful what we're going to end up doing is doing uh, drafting fan fiction. You know, we all have grand ideas for what we'd like the world to look like, but the reality is you've got roughly 370-ish million Americans. And if anything has uh, told us or taught us over this past several months, uh, our country is pretty divided on a number of topics, which means that there is a diversity of views and opinions. And even in the Psychedelic Bar Association, and even down in our own Law and Regulatory Committee, we can see some of that. There are people from diversity of backgrounds, diversity of life experiences, who offer diversity of perspectives, all of which are great. I welcome it all. I think it's one of our, our best strengths, frankly. But it demonstrates that we can't make something that's going to be, you know, sort of pret-a-porter, one size fits all. Um, or at least if we're going to try to shoot for that, it's got to be as enticing to the people who are not interested in this as it can possibly be, because it's those people who we need to convince. So I think breaking out of our echo chambers is going to be essential, because in and amongst our group, uh, obviously we care about this, we want to see it happen, we want to see change, and we all have good ideas. But again, we're not the ones that have to be convinced. We're already convinced. It's everybody else. So with that thought in mind, I've been ruminating, uh, frankly, for years on what this might look like. And I've come to some conclusions, or at least initial conclusions, um, but I'm open to having my mind change. And so part of this open audio video letter to the Law and Regulatory Committee is exactly that. I, I also remind that um, I don't claim primacy on any issues. I don't claim to be the expert in the room on anything. I am just one guy with a body of ideas, and I'm open to having my mind expanded and even changed. So as always, I reserve my right to be wrong, and I also reserve my right to change my mind. I'm always on the hunt for better, and if somebody's got better ideas, please share them with me, share them with everybody, and let's see if we can't build a better machine. So from there, we have to start now asking and answering questions. So one of the first questions that I think we bang into is, what would people say yes to, or, or how do you get them to say yes to something? And I, I think it's reasonable to assume that right now the parties who are interested in changing psychedelic laws are in the minority. We, we don't hold a majority in the country. At least I don't think so. I'd be surprised if we don't. I'd be happy if we don't, but I, I don't think we hold uh, a majority. Or excuse me, I said that backwards. I'm surprised if we do hold a majority. So knowing that we have to convince what is a probable majority that is either opposed to this or more probable, just not really aware of it enough to, to um, lend an intelligent uh, and well-considered voice to their side, uh, we need to go out there and convince people. And I think that it's going to make our task easier if we include some terms and conditions and, frankly, barriers that will help the naysayers to feel more comfortable saying yes to this. What do I mean by that? Well, amongst choices that we can take in crafting a uniform body of laws, we could just go with decriminalization only and stop there. We could basically write a body of statutes that says, hey, uh, these substances are currently illegal, they are probably going to be felony charges if you engage or do things you're not supposed to be doing. 
And we could say, fine, we're going to take away the criminal elements of that and stop, which would mean people would then be free to do as they please in whatever manner they wish within reason, uh, with no regulation of any kind. Now, I will tell you, in a long-term sense, like multiple generations from now, I'm all in favor of just straight decrim and having no regulation, or at least very minimal regulation, uh, if you have to have regulation. But I think as a culture, the United States is just not there now. I think within maybe two or three generations, the country could be if it chooses to be. But right now, today, I think decriminalization and nothing else, probably a bad idea. I think that is going to cause problems more than it's going to solve problems. And I think we will discover if we just do decrim only, the resultant, frankly, bad behaviors that people will engage in will cause a backlash and, and a retrograde effect. And we'll be right back to where we are today or worse, because now you'll have some portion of the population that was perhaps agnostic on this now having experienced something bad and thus now associating their agnosticism with a fervent position anti to what we're trying to achieve. So I think letting this thing out of its cage with no preparation is dangerous and bad. So I'm not a fan of that uh, as a pathway. I know some people are. There are entire groups out there whose entire ethos is devoted to decrim only. Um, I think decriminalization is unavoidable. I think it's essential to any change because right now, again, everything that we're talking about has criminal statutes associated with it. So if you want to alleviate that, you have to eliminate those criminal statutes or at least create some uh, tranche in which people can engage and enjoy some level of exemption or immunity from those statutes if you're not going to just do away with them. So that's sort of the tip off to what I've been thinking, is how do you get people who don't want to say yes to say yes while also fostering an environment where it's not going to blow up in your face for them having said yes. And here's what I think. I, I, I think having a program that would just say, by default, Every uh, capable adult is automatically included, meaning you just pass a law that says this stuff is no longer illegal. That's not going to work. I think the better path is instead to place responsibility onto the end user. Create some sort of a qualification or licensing structure where if people want to engage, they have to do some affirmative things to qualify, to opt in. So sort of like a, a licensing model. Actually, just no, not even sort of. It is a licensing model. Let's just call it what it is. And what I'm thinking in part is you look at uh, cannabis programs. Like here in my home state of Arizona, we have a medical marijuana program. And if you want to be a medical marijuana patient, you've got to get off your butt and go do some stuff and earn the privilege, which includes... Uh, top of the list, you have to have one of a series of listed maladies that would qualify you. Uh, and then you have to go to see a physician, get your certification for that malady being a qualifier, and then you have to fill out some paperwork, pay a fee, provide some data, and then you get your patient card. And that's worked really well. And in, in fact, since the program here in Arizona started roughly, well, now almost 12 years ago, um, it's been good. There, we haven't seen a spike in crime. We haven't seen a spike in abuse. We haven't seen, well, really a spike in anything. 
to the contrary, we've seen our, our opioid uh, addictions and deaths go down, um, notwithstanding the incredible amounts of illegal fentanyl spilling over our borders. Uh, that's a complete category into itself. But cannabis didn't create problems. It solved problems, and it was in a well-regulated structure. And I think we've got enough evidence and time on the books now to demonstrate that this is principally true. So we have models to look at of a licensed regulated structure that are working. And I'm not saying it's an apples to apples comparison to what we want to do, just the concept of licensing. And I think we have an easier time with a legislature or if you're going to go the initiative route at the ballot box where you're telling the public, hey, look, we're taking safety as serious as anybody, more serious because we're more aware of this than the lay public. And we would agree that to have somebody want to engage, they would have to do something affirmative. They'd have to go and earn that privilege and demonstrate responsibility, etc. Now, I realize a lot of folks are going to say, hey, wait a minute, that intrudes on my rights. Why should I have to explain myself? Why should I have to qualify? Why should I have to present any data or justify even my existence? I get all that. I'm not insensitive to it. But we're talking about you're wanting to lever change in the law. And you're not the gatekeeper. Your state legislature is, or literally the entire population who votes in your state, those are the gatekeepers. So ultimately, it kind of a little bit doesn't matter what you think or feel. It's how everybody else thinks or feels, because you're wanting to change a law. So to make this easier to go get the yes, I think you have to present some of these limits. And I think going back to your legislature and saying, look, we want to create an avenue by which people who want to responsibly engage can do that and they're willing to demonstrate their responsibility and they're willing to be bound to that responsibility. I think that's fair. I don't think that's unreasonable. So if you follow me thus far, let's talk a little bit then about what kind of qualifications one would expect, what kind of responsibilities one would expect. And by the way, I don't have this whole thing fleshed out. I've just, I've got concepts down and I'm talking sort of high philosophical points. The details, that's for the committees to all sort of wrestle with and, and, and refine. So what kind of restrictions would we want to put or place into uh, a qualification to be, well, licensed to engage? Well, maybe it's some education. Maybe you've got to go and sit for a few classes or seminars where you're going to get some base education on what these substances are, what they do, how to engage in self-care, how to uh, dose or run a, a ceremony for yourself. You know, anything health and safety oriented, uh, I think, would be welcomed. I think most legislatures or voters would embrace that. I'm not saying you've got to go and, you know, take full-blown medical classes or get certified in CPR or anything like that. But having some criteria. Now, Granted, that then becomes contentious over, well, what would the curriculum be and who's going to decide that curriculum and who's going to enforce that curriculum and who's going to write it and revise it and keep it updated? Well, those are all good questions, and those are all addressable in the details of the drafting. But again, just as raw concept, if you agree that having somebody take affirmative steps to opt in rather than just automatically being included, is the better path, then sure, we can all work together and frame what would be needed. So then, 
if you agree with that much, of course, that spins off a bunch of other questions like, okay, how do you source this stuff? How do you uh, grow it or refine it or manufacture it if that's part of your program? How will you go about letting people uh, engage in exchanges? Will you permit commerce? Will you permit industrialization? These are all good questions. I personally think that qualifying somebody to engage should also include qualifying them to supply themselves. So, for example, I can imagine most of the interest in psychedelics is probably going to swirl around mushrooms, not some of the more esoteric stuff like ibogaine, although there's a great place in the world for ibogaine, of course. And then you've got the whole raft of, of conversation about manufactured chemicals like you know, your LSDs, etc. I think those probably deserve their own separate category of conversation. For, for now, though, let's just talk about the natural stuff, things that we have historical record, uh, frankly, thousands of years in the instances of mushrooms. Certainly the, the ayahuascas, the, the plants that bear dimethyltryptamines, these are all substances that have strong, long historicity. And I think because of that are able to put a legislature or the public in more of its comfort zone than coming in and saying, hey, we've got some designer uh, tryptamines that were manufactured. We'd like to include those too. Again, those are all worthy conversations, but I, I think they're going to beg a different category. I, I could be wrong. So relative to sourcing, I, I think licensing people to be able to cultivate for themselves would solve a number of problems, including where somebody gets their substance from, but also eliminating, specifically eliminating black market. Because one of the goals I hope we would all embrace is we want to eliminate black market. We want to have product safety. We want to know that the parties who produce or supply products are doing so in a responsible fashion and that the products they're supplying are what they're supposed to be and as represented and not some adulterated tainted product. Again, hat tip to all this fentanyl taste tainted stuff flowing over our borders. Um, and by the way, if you don't live in, in a border state, you may not hear this as often as perhaps we do say in, in Arizona, because we are in a border state. Uh, but there is a flood of adulterated drugs coming over the border, black market, and for whatever reason, well, the reason frankly is fentanyl is cheap to manufacture, it's laced with fentanyl. Now, licensing puts the responsibility back on the license holder. And that's one of the things I really most appreciate about following this path, because it, it embraces self-responsibility. And yeah, it does put a small burden. And I'm going to emphasize the word small there, because it is a small burden to have to provide your name and some details in order to get your qualification. It's a small burden to have to sit through classes and learn about the thing you're wanting to engage in. Let's compare this to, to uh, driving a car. So across the country, there are licensing schemes where you have to apply for your driver's license. You have to sit through some level of education before you can even take your driver's test. And yeah, you actually have to take a driver's test, both written and practical skill. You have to demonstrate knowledge of the rules and also demonstrate the ability to actually control and operate the vehicle properly. And you legitimately can fail one or both of those tests and be deprived of the right of a driver's license. 
And I said right of a driver's license. Let's back that up. It's not a right. It's a privilege. And that's the difference here. So analogizing to driver's licenses, for example, and this might be a, a good way to think about this concept I'm talking about regarding having licensing and, and, and qualification for people to be end users. With motor vehicles, you can't just drive one. You can't just jump in one and get behind the wheel and start taking it on public streets. That's a privilege you earn after having demonstrated that you have the skills and responsibility and maturity, maturity, to be able to operate what is regarded as a very useful tool, but also a deadly instrument. Consider the numbers of motor vehicle deaths around the country in any given year. I suspect it's measured in the tens to hundreds of thousands. That's a lot of deaths from motor vehicles every single year. But we don't ban motor vehicles and we don't ban people from engaging in the use of motor vehicles because they're just that useful. Imagine civilization today without motor vehicles. It's impossible. So in that sense, we as a civilization have made peace with the dangers. We're accepting of the dangers and uh, frankly, we find a percentage of harm and a percentage of death from motor vehicles socially acceptable. It's baked right into our program. We can make vehicles that are much more safe, but we choose not to because it's more expensive. We could be much more restrictive on who can and cannot drive, but that would eliminate the use of motor vehicles by people who need them. So from that analogy, I think we can borrow some concepts and consider if we're going to make restrictions on motor vehicle use ornery enough to require that you take classes, education, be subjected to a physical practical test as well as a, a written knowledge test, all as conditions. And then once you get that driver's license, you're forever subject to a, a litany of rules. Even as you go from state to state, jurisdiction to jurisdiction, you're still required to obey and behave properly. These are concepts that can be easily lifted and put into the first wave of a psychedelic emergence. Now, again, I think given enough time, and I'm talking again two, three generations from now, the, the acculturated use of psychedelics can become normalized to the point where you might be able to eliminate or minimize these regulations. Again, we're not there yet, but we can be. But until then, why not have this bridge of regulation in place to start building public knowledge, public confidence, and then ultimately see where it goes. And placing a lot of the burden on the people who want to engage, I, I think is fair. I don't think it's unreasonable. Uh, again, we're starting from a place of total prohibition. And, and those of us who feel that pro total prohibition is wrong, I think we're the ones who have to demonstrate that we're right. So I don't mind taking the burden on. Again, some people might feel sensitive about having to provide their name or identity or, or have to apply for things, but we're talking levering change. And again, let's come full circle to where this little uh, discussion started. You need to convince a legislature or the public, and you need to make those people comfortable. You need to win them over so they'll say yes. And telling them, hey, I want to engage, and I'm willing to assume the responsibility for that, and I'm willing to be 
uh, inconvenienced in order to uh, be granted that privilege, I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to ask. And it will allow us time to develop culture and develop curriculum and develop public knowledge. So I, I think it's a good thing we should explore, and I'm looking forward to the Law and Regulatory Committee kicking these ideas around and seeing where we can develop them. And on that, I'll just I'll touch a little bit more on what this could look like. So in a regulated environment where the end user is being told, hey, you've got to do some affirmative things to win the privilege, and yeah, we'll create a statute that grants you a privilege, but you're going to be boxed in still. You can't just do a free-for-all. Um, problems that will come from that, that we're going to have to solve. And I think they're all solvable. It's going to be source of, of whatever it is you're using. And again, as I mentioned a, a little bit ago, I think uh, winning that privilege should probably include also the privilege to produce for yourself. So if you want to cultivate a plant, you should be allowed to grow that plant. If you want to cultivate a fungus, you should be allowed to cultivate that fungus. Um, but granted, there are going to be lots of people who neither have the skills, nor ability, nor willingness to produce for themselves, or, or just even access. So what do you do for those folks? Well, maybe we talk about having uh, a class of license holders akin to caregivers. And again, I'm, I'm looking at my state of Arizona and its medical marijuana model, which I know is, is a model that is used in other states as well, or iterations of it, to be fair. It's not an apples-to-apples copy. Um, but the concept of a caregiver, where you're going to have a third party who will be granted your proxy rights, so you win, you win the privilege and you've passed your test and you get your, your psychedelic uh, license card, perhaps what you can have is a condition in which you're allowed to grant your third-party proxy, we'll call them a caregiver, but, you know, the name is fungible, uh, but you'll grant them your privileges to produce and cultivate. And in exchange, that person on your behalf would have uh, protected privilege to produce for you and to give to you that which you were unable or unwilling to produce for yourself. And I can envision lots of scenarios, not, not just people who can't or won't, but, you know, look, if you're living in an apartment and you're in a rented property, you're not going to be able to do this. It's Your landlord will forbid it. Um, if you don't have a lot of space or you live in a climate that's just not conducive, you're going to have problems, and you might need to turn to a third party in order to source your stuff. And, of course, we don't want to foster black market. We want everything to be in the sunlight, above board, in full view of the public, so that it can be properly, uh, well, frankly, judged, and, and judged reasonable, not unlawful, not, not you know, cartel-type behaviors. So, yeah, perhaps having that caregiver able to be your proxy and produce for you would be a good idea. Again, I'm not saying it's the solution, but one to think about. And that, of course, turns into a whole raft of other questions you have to answer, which include, well, hang on, do you want to allow industrialization or not? And if you do, do you want to have any hems or restrictions on industrialization? Well, at the caregiver level, you could uh, provide that that caregiver is allowed to recoup its expenses. So let's say, for example, I have the patient card and I want to grant my caregiver my proxy so they can produce whatever it is I want them to produce for me. Um, that caregiver should at a minimum be allowed to recoup its out-of-pocket costs growing for me what I wasn't growing for myself because logically I would have been incurring those expenses. 
And then you can ask the next question, which is, well, can that caregiver profit? Can they mark it up? Can they uh, turn this into some kind of a, a career or, or, or a vocation for themselves, as opposed to just being a little you know, side hobby where it eats up their time and eats up their money and doesn't reward them anything? Again, these are things to be considered and to talk about. Uh, likewise, I know generally the uh, folks in the Law and Regulatory Committee and tons of people I've spoken to in the psychedelic community all kind of shudder at the thought of psychedelics turning into what cannabis has turned into in the country. It, meaning, we like cannabis, we, we enjoy it, etc., but um, Industrial scale for psychedelics like what cannabis has turned into, probably not a good idea. At least not now, anyway. But again, if you're going to have a public switching on and, and engaging in this, they're going to need to be supplied, and somebody's going to have to do it if they're not doing it for themselves. So you're going to have to answer those problems. And maybe, maybe wholesale or whole scale, excuse me, industrialization is just inevitable or the best path to take. Again, these are all things to be talked about in our committees as we try to figure out the, the feasibleness and economics of this. Because, you know, look, if you've got a business that loses money every day, it's not going to be a business that will endure very long. So you do have to take those things into consideration. Um, and maybe, maybe part of this system also includes a series of statutes within the model that grant immunities. So, for example, if you want to have the end user have to be licensed, maybe it also includes that the end user waives their rights to bring civil claims against third parties who supply them. You know, for example, if you want to have a caregiver and you're not producing for yourself and that caregiver supplies you, guess what? Maybe you don't get to sue that caregiver if something goes wrong for you. That might be something worth exploring. This way the caregiver can have some motivation to help you and also know that they're not going to be made to suffer for having done so. Things to think about. Taking that concept a little bit further about granting certain immunities within the statutes, Consider also, even, even if you take this up to an, an industrialized level, let's say you're going to have some kind of a proper formal dispensary uh, type business that also gets licensed, that business is going to face a lot of problems getting its doors open and a lot of problems keeping its doors open because it's not going to be a normal business. Here again, analogizing to the cannabis world you're going to still have federal statutes that are not in favor of this. You're still going to have Schedule 1 and the Controlled Substances Act. You're still going to have uh, IRS Regulation 280E, which imposes uh, inability to write off any of your normal business expenses, which means that the taxes that any such business will pay are going to be exorbitant. And then, of course, there's troubles accessing insurance products for those businesses and inability to access bankruptcy. So when you heap all of those things onto what will be a smaller, much smaller business than cannabis, you can see that the economics of it probably militate against industrialization unless it's shunted into something like adding these things to the, the cannabis 
programs that exist throughout the states. But I don't really think that's likely to happen. I think that the, the other plant medicine substances, the stronger psychoactives, are probably going to remain kind of a category unto themselves. So having these businesses be allowed some extra benefits in the statutes, for example, rendering them immune from civil suit because somebody engaged in the product they acquired, Again, placing responsibility on the end user. That may make best sense, and that might be what helps this sort of model to thrive. Again, I don't know for sure. These are just things to think about. But I wanted to share with you all the, the concept of this regulated model where it is the end user who has to pursue license and maintain licensure. And in so doing, they become the party who must demonstrate responsibility and maintain that responsibility at risk of losing the license. I think that might be something worth exploring because I think, again, all the way back to where I started this conversation with you, we have to convince legislatures and we have to convince the public to make a change in the law. There's no other path. You could file a court case or, you know, multiple court cases to try to change how laws are interpreted or, you know, how the criminal acts are applied. But the reality is no court case is going to open the doors to psychedelics. It's just not going to happen. You're going to have to change this at the state level and then resultingly try to force that change up at the federal level because it's not even going to start at the federal level. There's zero will there to make that happen. So it all starts at the grassroots and works its way up. So anyway, I, I hope uh, some of these ideas at least didn't catch your immediate ire or, or um, turn you off. But uh, these are things I've been thinking about. I'd love to workshop this with the gang in the Law and Regulatory Committee and see if we can give it some shape and form that makes best logical sense. And I'd also like to discuss my overarching philosophical belief that it is, in fact, the legislators themselves who need to be convinced. Uh, you might not agree, and I'd like to know what you see if you see something different. So anyway, I appreciate you. I appreciate your time, and I'm going to get back to my Sunday coffee, and I will talk to you all soon. Take care. Have a question about psychedelics and the law? You're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community. Thank you.